You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. As I was mulling over this passage this week, I kept thinking about Abraham as a friend of God, and but then I started thinking about friends in general and really what a true friend is. And if you have one, that you should treasure your true friend, right? So turn to your neighbor and say, "Will you be my friend?" It got really sad all of a sudden. <laughs> I'll be your friend. That's, that's what I heard right there. Now, the thing about friendships or friends is that they can be quite costly, okay? Like, it takes time to have a friend. It takes time to make a friend, to build a friendship and to maintain that friendship, right? I mean, how many of us have had amazing friends during high school, and how many of you guys are still in touch with them? Probably not a lot of us, right? We, we, we stopped maintaining them. I think there's something really kind of organic about true friendships, like it just naturally happens. They're a kindred spirit, and they just mesh well with you and your personality. They have great humor compatibility and all these things. But either way, these friendships, these relationships, you still have to maintain them somehow. In fact, there are difficulties with maintaining friendships because it's more than what you simply, uh, what they offer you. It's really more about how or the way in which you offer yourself to them. Meaning, it's difficult to stick with your friend when you don't understand what's going through in their lives. And if you do understand them, then you're automatically somehow obligated to help them in one way or another. In other words, there will be sacrifices. You're going to have to call. You're going to have to pick up the phone late at night. You're going to have to maybe drive cross-country to visit them if their parents have passed away or something like that. There are ups and downs in friendships, but the essence of being a good friend is, is that it's simply a costly treasure. It's a costly It's a great thing, but it's not the easiest thing. It'll cost you too. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're costly. <laughs> Well, <clears throat> like we heard last week about the Bible, calling Abraham the friend of God, we know it was a deep privilege, and it's actually pretty amazing that Jesus would even call us his friends, according to John 15. But today, from this passage, we'll learn, like any other friendship, that being a friend of God has also a great responsibility. So my first point is this, okay? God, he is the judge of everything, and he does what's right. <laughs> I'm hearing amen there, and some, here, some of you guys are saying... Ooh, that's, a, that's a tough pill to swallow. God is God. He's the judge of everything, and what he does is right. Now, I want that to sink in for a second here, folks. Let that sink in for a second. Can there be a greater statement of faith than that? That God, I'm willing to admit and confess that you are God, and you can do anything you want, and whatever it is that you do, you are right in doing it. Whew. Try saying that outside the public square. You know, one of the most difficult things in life to deal with is the perception that things are not fair. No matter who you are, where you're at, we've all said that one point. It's not fair, God. It's not fair. And that my friends are, man, to say that, those are really bitter words. 
when we say it's not fair. But what makes it even more difficult is when we say not just circumstances are unfair, not just my employer is unfair, not just my family life is unfair, but God, you are unfair. The moment that we start accusing and directing and pointing at God and say it's because of you, well, that's different. Well, that's what seems to happen here in Abraham in this chapter. God had come near to Abraham, and he had eaten at his tent. Now God, he confides to Abraham that he's about to destroy the city of Sodom where Abraham's nephew Lot lives. So here's where we get at it. Abraham's first concern was simply this. You're going to destroy this? How is that fair, God? In verse 25, Abraham says, Far be it from you do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fair as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Abraham had to learn to trust God, God who is his friend at this most crucial moment in his life. Abraham had to be able to say at this point, you know what? What am I thinking? God, you're God. You are judge over everything, in everything, and what you do is right. Now I wonder how many of us can say that at crunch time. We're constantly questioning. We're constantly doubting God, aren't we? In fact, many unbelievers will stand their ground on the basis of questions like, well, where was God during the Holocaust when Hitler killed 6 million Jews or during Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge regime that killed and starved out 8 million people? Or how about Mao and Stalin killing, the total, uh, killing 40 to 45 million of their own people apiece? That's about 90 million people total. Where was God then? Where is God while young girls are shipped and sold into slavery? Where was God when people lost their lives during the horrific tsunami that hit Indonesia and Japan? Where was God when 9-11 hit? Where was God when I lost my parents from that crazy car accident when a drunk driver hit head on from them? Where was God when my husband abused me for years and years? Where was God when I lost my child? Where is God? That's the question we constantly ask. Where is God? You're fair? Where? God, you're trying to wipe this entire city? Is that fair? Where are you in this? But here we learn that it is God and God the wickedness. That's how God announces his judgment to Abraham. In verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Like, what outcry is God even speaking of? It's the cry of the victims who are oppressed by the wicked. It's the cry of the blood that was shed. It's the cry of the defiance of the wicked where they continue to fight and to argue and to rebel against God. You know, there was a time when, when I was a youth pastor, when I had these youth kids, and they were all up in arms about some individual. It was being circulated in Facebook about some guy who was, who was um, abusing children. It was happening in Africa, and soon everyone began changing their profile pic and began to post up all sorts of humanitarian blogs and articles to bring greater awareness. So they would post up their concern for the slow progress and even the apathy of certain individuals for not being as active as they were. But then after that issue began to kind of wane, after that issue began to fizzle out, the intrigue began to lose its appeal, and soon after, no one was posting articles. No one was posting statements of solidarity and awareness of this, of this issue anymore. You see, what happens with us 
is this for you and I, for people here, is that we'll hear the muffled, occasional cry of distress, the muffled, occasional cry of defiance. And we might get upset for a moment or two. We might even join a march. We might even donate to an organization, hoping that pooling our resources together will somehow alleviate the world crisis. But it's occasional. It's sometimes. It's when we're up to it. It's when it aligns with how we feel that day, that week, that month, or that year. But let me tell you all something. It's not occasional for God. God, he hears it all. And he hears it all the time. And he promises to come and to bring judgment upon this wickedness. God, he can't just shut off his Facebook account. He can't just focus on a different issue. God, he hears the cries of distress all the time, and God, he hears the cries of defiance all the time. God, he sees everything, he hears everything, he knows everything, and he knows all the injustice that's going on in this broken world. Nothing catches him by surprise. We get upset every once in a while when something like this occurs. Look into the heart of the Father. There was a pastor and author named James Boyce, and he once wrote in his book, he said this, Listen, can't you hear the cries in your imagination? I think I hear the cry of a child, wretched, hurt, and terrified, being beaten by his drunken father. There's another cry. It is the cry of an old man assaulted by a gang, a tough street kids. I hear his painful cry as they beat him around his face, around his shoulders. There's the cry of a teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. And there, the cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of a man so trapped by dehumanizing welfare system that he has completely just given up. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures, the ruckus cry cries in the thousands of bars that scar the face of our cities, the cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them, the soft cries of drug addicts, the arrogant cries of those who have been able to defeat their enemies or ruin their competitors. But wait, those cries are only a fraction of the million of cries, millions of cries that are rising up every moment of every day, of every street, in every city and village in our land. Cries that are all heard not by you, but are heard by God, and that are heard and felt by God. Must God's judgment not fall on us too and quickly? How shall we excuse ourselves when the only righteous God comes down to see if what we have done is as bad as the accusation that has reached him? God knows. He hears it exponentially. It is exponentially worse. And so when God, he heard the cries from Sodom, he told Abraham, I got to do something about this. I can't let it just go. I must bring judgment. I must destroy. You see, you may think you get angry when you see the pain and injustices of the world, but it's not even close to the way God feels about it, the way God hears it and he sees it. He's aware of all the pain that's happening to you as well. Did you know that? Everything that goes through in your life, he knows it's not just, you may get hurt, we may just put an arm around your shoulder and say, there, there, but God, it pains him. It hurts him. He is aware. And so his judgment is coming 
all the pain, all the suffering, all the wickedness, he'll bring judgment. He will vindicate. He will bring justice. And he'll be right in doing it. Now, God, he's not impulsive. He's not reckless like us. In God's fairness, he also uses his wisdom and his time to know what's happening. In verse 21, it says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So this is something called anthropomorphism. Like, God, he doesn't really have to go down to, to Sodom to investigate. God, he's all-knowing, right? He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. But God, he says this in human terms for us in order so that we can understand that he's saying, look, I'm, I'm processing this. You see, I'm being thorough about this. I am reliable in the way that I come about and resolving these things. In other words, God, he's saying, I'm throwing you guys a bone and assuring you that I'll be thorough about this whole thing. That's why we don't need to ever ask God, how could you let this happen? God, don't you realize what this means? Or God, didn't you see that? I mean, does that sound familiar? Like, God, he knows. He knows. God is reliable, and God, he knows what's going on. Now, there's something else here. We have to understand that God, he's also truly patient and fair. So a lot of people will read this long exchange between Abraham and God, and they'll come out of it thinking, man, praise God for Abraham. What an interceder. Someone who is just <clears throat> remarkably in this connected intercessory prayer with God. What a spiritual warrior this Abraham is, but I don't think that's the point here. Because the interceding, if at all, was for the righteous ones in Sodom, not for Sodom as a whole. But I also think that Abraham simply struggled with God's judgment, saying, you know, it's not fair. I mean, verse 25, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, do what kind of thing? Well, to sweep away all the righteous people along with the wicked. You see, Abraham, he knew something. He knew that the wicked deserved judgment. That's a no-brainer. He knew. There's no question about that. But for some reason, he was also convinced that the city was filled with lots and lots of good people too. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or do what is right? You see, like most of us, Abraham, he didn't understand just how wicked the world really is. And so God, in his mercy and patience, he let Abraham talk it out. And he listened to Abraham. He let Abraham think it through. So Abraham said, <clears throat> okay, God, check it. If I find 50 righteous people... God says, I will spare the whole city. And then Abraham thought about it some more. And maybe he did a little calculation because from the little knowledge he has of the city, remember he went to go rescue his rescue lot not too long ago. So he knows a little bit about the city and the area, and he goes, okay, so, so God, listen, like I'm just dust and ashes, like, what, right? So what if it's less than 50? Like five less. Like you wouldn't destroy an entire city for 45, would you? And God says, fine. If you can find 45 righteous people, then I won't destroy it. But then Abraham thought about that too. Just be saved. Like this is just me, Abraham, saying off the top of my head here. But what if I can't find 45? What if I can only find 40? And God said, fine. If you find 40 for their sake, I will not destroy the city. Now you would think Abraham's pushed God enough at this point. And quite frankly, Abraham knows he's pushing it too. 
But the more he thinks about, the less and less and less certain he is about the number of righteous people there. So he says, okay, God, hold on, buddy. Don't be angry with me here. Remember, you're God, and, and I'm just stupid dust and ashes here. Like, so what, what do I know, right? So don't get angry, but what if I can only find 30, 30 righteous people, and the Lord says in his mercy, fine. Okay, if you find 30 I won't destroy the city. What about 20? Fine. For the sake of 20, I won't do it. Okay, last deal, God. Last time. Remember, you're awesome. You're God. You're totally, like, superb. And I'm just a dude filled with ashes and, and dust, right, for brain. So hear me out one last time. What if I can only find 10? And God says, for the sake of 10, I won't destroy it. So what happened here? What did God do for his friend Abraham? God, he gave Abraham exactly what he asked for, didn't he? But there's a lesson here for Abraham because in God's willingness to hear him out and answer his request, <clears throat> forced Abraham to realize and come to grips with two things. First is this, that God, he's really merciful. Man, how many times have we tested him? God is merciful. But secondly, Abraham had to admit that people are wicked. 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 25 to 10. That people are a lot more wicked, wicked than he would want to believe. The, you know, the modern sentiment <clears throat> today, a lot of people say this, that, is that people are inherently what? Good. You've heard that, haven't you? People are inherently good. That's false. People may at times do good things. We may occasionally be kind, now and again generous, sometimes charitable, but we're sinful through and through because everything we do and everything we are apart from Christ stems from a desire to please our own flesh. We have no desire for God, and if God is the ultimate good, which Jesus says he is in Mark chapter 10, but if God is the ultimate good and we don't want the ultimate good, then what are we? We're bad. We're sinful. We're spiritually dead. And so it turns out there wasn't even 10 righteous people living in the entire city. You see, hear me out. The problem wasn't God's judgment. The problem was Sodom's wickedness. The problem isn't God's timing, folks. The problem is our faithlessness. The problem isn't that God isn't speaking to us. The problem is that you and I, we're not listening. The problem isn't that God's not putting godly people into your lives, the church into your lives. The problem is that we are removing ourselves out of the church, out of the lives of godly people. You see, the problem is, 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 is not God's perfection. The problem is our pridefulness. The problem isn't justice and the hatred of sin. The problem is our rebelliousness and our love of sin. God's not the problem. We are. You're not going to hear that anywhere else. You're not going to hear that from Oprah. I say, I've mentioned her almost as many times as I've mentioned Jesus, I believe. We need to stop putting God on trial and start really evaluating our own hearts and where we're at because if we honestly and biblically examine where we're at, we'll see really how far off the mark we are. No wonder we get mad. 
No wonder we're just so confused at times. No wonder we struggle. How can we not if we're constantly eyeing God who is our solution as the one who is our problem? God's not the problem. We are. Our sins are. We need to come to grips with God's character, his justice, and his righteousness. We need to stop putting God on trial as Abraham did. For him, it was, God, how can you judge an entire city? Aren't you supposed to be good and just and fair and loving? Maybe we've done the same thing too. God, how can you let my mother die? Aren't you supposed to be good and just and fair and loving? God, why won't you stop the suffering in my life? Aren't you supposed to be good and just and fair and loving? God, why won't you answer my prayers? That and praying for years and years and years. Aren't you supposed to be good and just and fair and loving? You see, we keep putting God on trial. We keep putting God on the stand. And here's a newsflash. He's not on trial. We are. And the issue isn't, isn't why can God allow this or allow that? Here's the issue. The issue is why doesn't God destroy every one of our sinfulness? Every one of us. Why is there even grace at all? Why should there even be mercy if God is God and he is higher and stronger and more powerful and wiser than anything that we can possibly imagine? Then why would he have to even answer to a peon like me? Why does God even need to have a conversation with Abraham? Why does he even need to go down to check out Sodom? Why does God need to do anything for us at all? You see, in the book of Revelation, there's this amazing scene. It's the culmination of everything, the full end of the redemptive story of God where everyone recognizes who God is. But nowhere in the last scene do we have people saying, God, what have you done? Why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that? No one is accusing or attacking God or putting him on trial. Instead, what we see here in the last scene is a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue worshiping God, singing hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Again, they shouted hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's all we can see. That's all they can say. When they see the gloriousness of God, all they can say is, praise be to you, God. What could I possibly charge you with? If we want to live a gospel-centered life, we have to know that it's all about Jesus. If we know that, if we want to understand that, then we need to regularly check our hearts and we need to stop putting God on trial. And it's through that biblical introspection that should lead to repentance. And repentance leads to forgiveness, which leads to peace. Which is what I believe you're looking for. Which leads to understanding. Which leads to a life of faith. You see, God is good. We are not, and we have to know that. But my last point is this. If you do know God's plans, then we better serve him. If you want to know something, Google it. That's pretty much what we have to do. If you want to know something, you got to Google it. In this day and age, if I want to learn something about my car, I don't go underneath my car. I don't go to a mechanic. I Google it. I YouTube it. This is the information age. Anything you might want to know, you can literally find the tip of your fingers on the computer. In fact, we have a lot more information that we can even process. In this day and age, we have a lot of people knowing even a lot of useless information, too, right? 
Like, we are filled with um, fortune cookie information. We're filled with a lot of Snapple bottle information, right? We're filled with that kind of stuff here. So we become information consumers. But knowing God and his ways is a lot different. Because this information isn't something that we can control. Because he is not at our disposal. We can only hope to know him the way in which God chooses to reveal himself to us. But because the reality is this, even if we have the Bible in our hands, and let's say some of you guys are reading the Bible every single day diligently. Let's say you're doing the one-year-long Bible reading plan too. Here's the thing. Here's the problem. Our natural minds cannot comprehend it. We have ears, but we cannot hear. We have eyes, but we cannot see unless it is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. He enlightens us and gives us understanding. This is why before we do QT, before we do devotions, before we even hear the word of God, we got to say, God, open my eyes. Holy Spirit, give me understanding. Amen? You got to start off with prayer. So, okay, in verse 17, we read that God, he's, he's not going to hide his plans from Abraham, who is his friend. So God, he tells him about his plan to judge Sodom and destroy. Now, why did God decide to divulge that information to Abraham? Why did God tell him? Was it simply because God loves gossiping? Of course not. Is it because God wants to really satisfy Abraham's curiosity? I don't think so. So why did God tell Abraham? God revealed his plans to Abraham so that Abraham could better serve God and so that Abraham could better participate in obedience in God's kingdom plan. Look at verse 17, 18 once again. <clears throat> the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what, am I, what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Okay, so this is what God is saying. He's saying, in order for Abraham to fulfill his role as a light to the nations, in order for Abraham to be a blessing unto the whole earth, Abraham needs to know who I am and what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Look, the only way we as God's people can be effective to an unbelieving world is if we accurately represent God. Wouldn't you say? Otherwise, what on earth are we selling? It's not, if it's not the God of the Bible, then it's falsehoods, it's lies, it's brokenness, it's idolatry, it's death. If all we know is how to think like the world and how to be like the world, then will it be, it will be impossible for us to be the salt and light that this broken world so desperately needs. You can't be spiritually distinct in the lives of your unbelieving friends and family if you yourself are indistinguishable from the world. You get that? We can't possibly think we can make any sort of spiritual, long-lasting, eternal impact if we're like the world. But God, he appeared to us just as he appeared to Abraham at the tent. Only this time God appeared to us in the person of Christ Jesus. We know who God is. We know his plans because it was disclosed to us through the word of God, through Jesus, through his apostles, through the writers of the Bible. We are called to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus, and for us to follow after him wholeheartedly in love and to love others. And because we know his plan, we should aim to be even more immersed in his plans because we're obligated, here's the key word, we're obligated to serve him, and through that obligation, guess what? You will see the blessings of God you will see the blessings of God. You know, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, but whatever he blessed was nothing compared to now because now we have Jesus who has come and brought salvation to the world. 
Your calling, my calling, our calling is to know God and enjoy him. To know God and enjoy him. That means we're called to be discipled and to make disciples in Christ. And that as we glorify him through obedience and life of service, there we will find true contentment and enjoyment. You know that? It is not when we remove ourselves from God. It is when we connect, when we go deeper into the life of God and his plan that you will truly find your purpose, your life, true satisfaction. Now that we know what God wants and who God is, we're called to live in grateful surrender of our lives to him as we serve him. That doesn't mean you need to go into ministry. That doesn't mean you need to become a missionary. That doesn't mean you need to become a pastor. Anywhere you are, as a student, as a, as a working professional, as a mom, as a dad, as a grandparent, it doesn't matter. You can live a life that serves him because you know his plan. Are you discipling someone? Are you being discipled? Do you want to be a friend of God? Do you have that kind of relationship with God? That's why he sent his son, Jesus, to come into this world. That's why Jesus reconciled you to God by taking your sins upon himself, and he endured the judgment. That's why you are forgiven and given a right standing before God. You say, Jesus, he did everything. He did everything so that you can become a friend of God. And so wherever you're at today, this is where the application is. Rest your soul. You're tired. I see it. You've been bombarded with so many tasks. A lot of obligations, a lot of responsibilities. You feel like as a mom and dad, you got to be perfect. As a student, you got to be perfect. As a, as a spouse, you got to be perfect. All these things. You have all these tasks and duties and responsibilities. And Christ is saying, stop. Take that hat off. Take that hat off. Take that hat off. And take that hat off. And he says, rest your soul in me. Are you feeling that? Are you sensing that? Rest your soul in the already completed work of Jesus Christ. And remember, it's not your job to judge. It's not your job to vindicate. It's God who's the judge of everything. And what he does is right. But if you know God, then you will know his plans. And if you know his plans, then we have no other alternative but to live in humble service. And when you do that, you will then truly find a life so complete, so satisfying. Because it will be a life that God would want for you and had made you for. Do you get that? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We know that this wasn't the easiest thing to hear. But Father, we thank you that um, in your amazing love and in your amazing grace, you have chosen us. You have pulled us out of the pit of despair. And Lord, while we still live on this side of glory, we will have questions. And we'll have doubts. And we'll have uncertainties as well. And we'll question, God, your fairness as Abraham did. 
And we'll still we'll have this false thinking that somehow, God, you're the problem. When you're, in fact, the solution. That, God, somehow you are the one who has instigated and brought about, brought about this calamity in our lives and the suffering and the pain. But in fact, God, you are the one who's saying, come to me because I will give you refuge. Come to me because I will give you peace. It's like we get hurt by someone else and we say, God, you did it. Father, I pray against that thinking. Pray, Father, I pray against that device of spiritual mentality thinking that God you are just a big bully with a magnifying glass frying us that's not you you are God who is constantly merciful constantly patient and with each question as Abraham asked if it's not 50 what about 45 if it's not 45 what about 40 down to 10 and God in your love and your patience and mercy you kept going to help us process it through but to also show us that you alone are good. I pray that today's message would just draw us closer to you today because I realize and I hope we all realize that you are the only source of good. For you alone are good. Lead us to the cross today. Lead us to you. Brothers and sisters, take a moment, pray, meditate, and we'll go into our last song.